Okay, welcome back everyone for Thursday's uh, Tea Time Q&A session. Uh, have some more questions people have submitted. And last night, uh, Ajahn gave the sixth talk of the retreat, uh, delving a bit more into um, feelings, which was very nice. Um, so we have a few questions that people have submitted about that. There's a couple holdovers from yesterday too. I'm not sure if we'll get through everything today, but we'll uh, we'll do our best and uh, encourage everyone who's in the Zoom room to uh, raise their hand if they have some questions um, on the talk last night or something, uh, an impression or something they want to share about um, last night's talk in particular. So, and for all of you on YouTube, um, following the retreat and, and listening to these, uh, visit Birkin.ca or there should be a link also in the uh, show description uh, of where you can submit questions for Friday and Saturday's Tea Time Q&A. So uh, we have just two left after today's is finished. So. Okay, well, let's start off with a live question from Heather. Heather B. Go ahead. I really enjoyed Ajahn Sona's talk last night. And I believe, like, right at the end, if I understood it correctly, I haven't had a chance to really listen to it today. If you blinked, you missed it. He mentioned the anecdote for unpleasant feelings, both physical and emotional, is meta. Mm. And he left it at that. And I'm curious if you could expound on that, because I feel like I can't get enough meta instruction in my life. Um, I was super grateful for two years ago that 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 whole week on it. But yeah, if you could just kind of expound, um, break that apart. In, uh, yeah, well, I, I think I must have blinked twice and, <laughs> and missed that bit. I listened to, like, I literally listened to the talk twice. And I didn't pick up on that. Uh, but uh, I think having, you know, listened to Ajahn, um, where he might go with this, and I could be wrong, is that, uh, you know, metta can be a kind of supreme antidote. One, because you're moving uh, already into sort of a skillful direction. And much of our, our negative reaction to to pain is probably closer to the defilements of anger, frustration, ill will, like that family of negative affect. Uh, and metta is said to be a direct antidote to that in and of itself. Um, but I think maybe the other sort of dimension of why it might provide this more global protection is by a conscious, long-term, thorough cultivation of uh, loving-kindness um, towards self and others kind of strengthens our 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 ability and our resolve um, to always be in this orientation for wanting the good, wishing well, wishing the good, wishing for safety and ease for other beings, and that would also include us. And so, you know, it would it just engender this kind of caring spirit. So even though one is sort of suffering rather than getting angry or frustrated, uh, the heart would be skilled in sort of just moving towards this kind of 
posture of metta or well-wishing. So there's a third component to that too, and it's by practicing metta, we're overcoming the hindrances and removing the nutriments. Uh, And, you know, this is, this is another concept that the Buddha uses. It's really helpful to sort of think about these negative states of mind, the defilements, um, the negative moods that plague us in our life, they don't come out of nowhere. They have their food. They have their nutriment. And by practicing right effort, and one way we can accomplish that is by practicing metta bhavana, um, we're, we're starving them of the oxygen they need and the other nutrients that they need. Uh, so in, in time, the, those habits just weaken and wither uh, as we become more accomplished. One of my teachers says, in the beginning, the defilements are strong and the Dhamma is weak. But with continued practice, effective practice, eventually the Dhamma becomes strong and fast and the defilements are weak. So those are three thoughts about how that might sort of unfold and one would do well to devote themselves almost exclusively to just metta bhavana i mean you could go very far in your practice with a with a a strong regular daily cultivation of that and mm, as you grow in the practice like learning how to sort of strengthen and even perfect the use of cultivating metta bhavana to advance your practice I had to pick two metta and metta and breath meditation. There's always a general encouragement to put a lot of effort into understanding how to use those as, as tools to advance our practice. So thank you, Ajahn. Sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's see. Any other? Yeah, Shelley, go ahead. So my understanding is is because you haven't practiced enough, if a defilement comes up, like for hindrance, anger, um, you just need to practice more. But meanwhile, you're, you're still having them. So for example, this morning, in my meditation, this image of my neighbor grabbing the little dog that I love so much in an angry manner, rushing off with this dog and and it appeared, well, it wasn't a mean spirit. And uh, so yeah, a feeling arose, a feeling arose. And uh, I cannot in any way see having meta for this person who was mean to this dog. And I think partially in meditation, why it came up was because some somewhere I thought that maybe I should have done something and I didn't when this happened. So I guess until I'm an Arahant, I'm still going to have this. And I could, I mean, I could see it. And luckily I could see it. the replay was in meditation, right? So, mm-hmm. You know, that's handy. I mean, that's one of the reasons I I meditate 
Um, so, so uh, I think you can. I think you can overcome sort of things like that long before you reach uh, arhatship. So, I mean, if we reflect on sort of the encouragement to practice sort of goodwill and loving kindness towards all beings unconditionally. So, you know, whether they're acting skillfully or unskillfully, um, it is the proper sort of orientation to have towards living beings, uh, to refrain from wishing them ill. Uh, and I would say, so it, especially when you see them doing something that's disagreeable, something you don't agree with, or something that you think is uh, unskillful or harmful, um, or even if you know it's harmful, it's still um, something that we really want to sort of learn how to sort of give that is goodwill and unconditional uh, loving kindness and friendliness towards a person. Uh, that doesn't mean you, you're blind to sort of someone's unskillfulness or that you condone sort of um, somebody acting in improper way or hateful way or abusive way. But um, to do anything else is really just to create harm to self and others. And it's uh, not a skillful way to sort of relate to an experience like that. So, and oftentimes we don't notice in the moment uh, defilements like, and that's part of the reason why we meditate. Um, We need we're not fast enough to sort of catch up with, or we're not discerning enough. There isn't strong enough mindfulness to uh, see uh, dukkha arising or see some state of affliction that has arisen in us or even um, habit patterns of how these things are arising on a regular basis. And it's through silence, solitude, and the lucidity and serenity that Ajahn voices encouraging that we have a chance to catch up. Um, it's almost like we don't have enough bandwidth. Um, and we're just much, much of our daily experiences, like some poorly buffered video, it, it, it just struggling to kind of keep up with life and the live content that's kind of streaming on. So Okay, well let's let's go ahead and move on. Um got a couple written questions here. I'll keep my eye on the chat window if anyone has in the uh, Zoom room has a a question or something you want to share, you can just raise your hand. But next I'll go to a question submitted from Scott from Bend, Oregon. Last night Ajahn Sona spoke about the Buddha experiencing physical pain during his lifetime. He mentioned that he had back pain in his later years, the first arrow. Ajahn said that the Buddha saw the pain as something that could arise and pass away, which I see as not being attached. I believe also Ajahn said that the Buddha did not have emotional negative experiences as a result, which would be the second arrow. Do I understand correctly that if I can view my pain as something that can arise and pass, not being attached, I will not experience the emotional pain that would follow if I were attached. 
Thus, the work of detaching from physical pain would have significant benefit. So, yeah, as you, I would agree with what you've written here, Scott. Um, if we can, you know, it's probably more than just understanding arising and passing away. But, you know, if we take that as a signifier of developing the kind of wisdom that the Buddha developed, an understanding of dukkha, its its origins, its how it arises, how it ceases, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactory, and selflessness, then um, we'll understand that this second arrow is is just adding sort of uh, insult to injury or uh, an additional sort of layer of dukkha in our experience and that it need not be followed up upon. I mean, what I always think of it is we just, we grow in our understanding that these things are inevitable, that uh, the pain of the body is just a essential, natural aspect of of life as a conscious being, as a sensitive being. And we we fully accept it. And right now, probably where most of us are is there's maybe some acceptance, but not complete acceptance of that kind of reality. There's still some hoping, some wishing, some wanting that our experience will be uh, pain-free, or maybe we expect that it should be uh, different than what it is that we receive. And... um, so, you know, this teaching of the second arrow is is really a kind of wonderful sort of image to to reinvestigate how it is that we receive our experience and, and then respond to it sort of skillfully. And the takeaway lesson is by uh, understanding Dhamma and understanding how, how Dukkha arises, we see the obvious uh, opportunity and benefit from not compounding the suffering that arises. And as we as we live our lives, especially as our aging uh, process unfolds and we're more liable to, to pain, you know, the Buddha had these pains of old age that he talked about. Um, it's a great asset to have that sort of wisdom perspective. Uh, and also he would alleviate the pain and take, he wasn't merely just detached from it. He also would, uh, refresh himself by meditating and going into a state of serenity where the pain would be uh, released. So he had a respite from it. He had a refuge from it, um, having developed a profound meditative ability. So, yeah, Joan, you have a comment? Hi, uh, John. Hi. And actually, no, I have a, another question. Okay. And um, uh, Arjun Sona in his talk last night was talking about um, our ability to detach from physical feelings or body, feelings of the body, mm. but our inability to detach from uh, psychological or emotional feelings. And um, because these arise from causes and conditions that have been put in place. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I can understand that, 
my question is, is it each time that I have a emotional, particularly a contrary or uh, distressing emotional feeling, do I need to understand the causes and conditions? Not always. I mean, it's, it's useful, but one can, you know, one can just develop the sensitivity to knowing that this is a, this is defilement. This is an unskillful sort of uh, reaction and, and then move sort of to resolve it. And, um, you know, sometimes when the mind is very kind of quick, fit, strong, you can really catch it very early on. Uh, You see yourself starting to get frustrated. You see yourself starting to get angry. You see yourself getting uh, annoyed. Um, Or you see yourself starting to sink into some negativity that's like moving in the direction of sadness or depression. And you know from your investigation, uh, that's that's not a skillful way to go. Like you don't just acquiesce to that and allow the habit of how you might have responded in the past to such things. I remember I used to kind of get up and when I was a young man, I'd get up in the morning sometimes and things weren't going my way. And by eight o'clock, I'd already decided that, you know, it was just going to be a bad day. And my perception was already skewed. Uh, along the lines of a story like that. And, you know, I, I, I remember just thinking, I, well, I just, I hope it doesn't get too bad, and I hope tomorrow is a better day. And I, I literally would just kind of resign myself to the fact that it was almost like, you know, some, some like, I had no part in it. It was just sort of, uh, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, sort of uh, phenomena or something. And, you know, that, that's, that's something that the Buddha wouldn't sort of sign off on at all. Mm. No matter how bad things are going, uh, there's always abilities sort of uh, decide how it is that we're going to sort of engage and respond to what life is throwing at us. So... But you know, as a practitioner, we get more sensitive to these things. We get to know ourselves, and we get to to know clearly when the mind is kind of moving in some skillful way. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be discursive or verbal. Sometimes you just feel this this movement in the direction of annoyance or anger or sadness or some afflictive emotion, and you you just counter it straight away. Like sometimes you can just dismiss it. Sometimes you can just drop it. Sometimes merely the awareness of that awakens a kind of heedfulness to sort of focus on a, a skillful, wholesome state of mind to turn the mind around. So, thank you. Uh huh. Okay. Next, this is a a reflection or sharing from our friend Tondon here in White Salmon. And rather than uh, read it, she's asked me, rather than uh, read it herself here, she's asked me to read it. So 
I've been listening to the Dhamma Talks each evening and then again the next morning at 9 a.m. How clear and interesting they are. What a wonderful offering to the world. My mind is blown over and over again and my heart broken open over and over again by these teachings. To sit on my cushion and to deeply listen to Ajahn Sona takes me right to Birkin, accompanied by the ease that reigns there. Yesterday, I listened to your tea time Q&A for the first time. I've been attending on Zoom each afternoon all week, but had not listened to the recorded one from the day before that is on the audio download list until yesterday. Henceforth, I will attend the Zoom meetings and then listen to the tea time once more the next day. It's not, it's not hyperbolic to say that I was truly startled by the hours spent listening to your voice, to the questions read, and your answers. Having known you and spoken with or served you often over the last nine plus years, it came as a true surprise to feel and see you in an entirely other way. That is by listening just listening, without the distraction of two activities, watching the titles and the faces on the Zoom platform and hearing simultaneously. I felt as though I was being lidden to a hidden treasure. In fact, I was. This audio mode, at least for me, brings with it such concentration. The answers you have given to the questions are so deep and clear and insightful and come across so true and beautifully in audio mode. And so I've been reflecting on this. Maybe sometimes just listening is somehow so pure and simple. And so thank you, dear Ajahn Sudanto and Sona for offering these audio files. They are a treasure trove. So, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're enjoying those, Tondon. I have to thank, um, doing a little work here, but mostly um, Rachel up at Birkin, who's a steward up at Birkin, has been uh, preparing the audio files and getting those out as quick as possible onto Ajahn Sona's podcast feed so that people can have the opportunity just to listen to them. Um, and that's useful if you have a lower bandwidth connection, but also as Tondon's talking about, there is something just to listening. So I'm a big fan of just listening to Dhamma talks and how it is that you experience something when you're just uh, uh, listening as opposed to watching video. So I can totally relate. Okay, next we have a question submitted from Will in London. Dear Ajahn, I hope this finds you well in reflecting on the retreat so far. One thing that has stood out for me is what appears to be proactive cultivating of emotional states, i.e. the enlightenment factors, and that mindfulness is not just a wholesale passive exercise or state of mind. My practice so far has been more focused on accepting and undermining negative states in order for the positive states to become clear, such as in the Buddha's analogy of purifying gold. But am I right in understanding that in addition to undermining negative states, one should actively conjure and sustain positive emotional states? And if so, 
Do you have any advice on how to balance this against also not falling into a state of mind of trying to achieve or attain something? So thanks for this uh, question, Will. And it's good to hear that this news of proactively cultivating uh, is something you're finding value in. Uh, If you haven't come across these teachings before, uh, I would suggest looking at the uh, recordings from our retreat that we did with Ajahn Sona last spring, which was all on right effort. And that is indeed what right effort says. If we're merely just trying to uh, resolve or counter or, as you say, undermine negative states, we're only doing half the job or part of the work. So the teaching on right effort, which is the uh, sixth factor of the Eightfold Path, is both to uh, resolve, to do away with, dissolve, uh, overcome, arisen negative sort of states of mind, as well as uh, support and nurture positive ones. And then the, the proactive elements of doing those things that we know will lead to a decrease in uh, negative states arising in the future, uh, as well as increasing chances for positive states of mind to arise in the future and to arise in stronger forms and with more frequency. So, you know, an, an active or proactive, as you say, engagement in cultivating positive states of mind is really a, a critical part of what the Buddha thinks of as the effort that we should be making in our spiritual practice. And you know, concluding your question here, you're asking about how do we balance putting forth effort in this proactive way without falling into a state of mind of trying to achieve or attain something. And typically I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, we might get that wrong a little bit. Um, But over time, if one is sensitive to mm, seeking balance in how it is that we put forth effort without uh, a lot of attachment, a lot of self, uh, you'll get it right. And you don't want to not engage because you're worried that you're going to sort of create some sort of imbalance of striving too hard or being somehow... uh, evoking a a strong sense of self. One thing I find that guards against that is just focusing on the intrinsic goodness of the positive states of mind and positive kind of dhammas, skillful dhammas. I find that helps counterbalance maybe the tendency for our effort to be fueled by a a solely fueled by a sense of self of being of becoming Um, the worldly way of doing things of course is through that sort of framework you know so like oh it'd be good if i had x or if i could achieve this or i could achieve that and so this is the normal way that we motivate ourselves, and something that I think works a bit better is just focusing on the fact that, you know, you can do this on, as an act of faith, the Buddha sort of praises cultivating certain states of mind, 
And so you devote yourself to um, cultivating and developing those states of mind. It's a transpersonal story. Um, because I have faith in the Buddha, I apply myself in this way. Uh, that's a perfectly valid way to kind of skirt. And it's a better motivational structure, I would say, to sort of engage in the cultivation of positive states of mind. But also you can just focus on the intrinsic goodness of it. When we understand the power of generosity, when we understand the power of virtue, when we understand the power of uh, restraint, of mindfulness, of serenity, of wisdom, uh, I think they have their own complete motivational structure built into them. Like the more we understand just how beneficial those qualities of mind are, that we don't, we don't, we don't need to have a self. We don't need to be striving uh, to achieve those states uh, for me. So I've, that, that's something that you might also sort of reflect on and uh, see how that sort of protects against that other sort of way of striving to sort of practice. Okay, so next we'll move to another question that came in. This is from Nassim in Victoria, Canada. Hello, Ajahn. I'm wondering about the need to induce joy or other positive mental states. Do positive mental states not spontaneously arise once negative mental states are eliminated? My understanding is that some schools of Buddhism consider positive states to be innate, but just obscured by negative ones. Um, well, Nassim, I think the, I think the answer is really both. Uh, you know, when we remove negative uh, mental states, then there, there's the chance for positive states to sort of arise um, on their own. But one doesn't want to be uh, too passive in that. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong at all. In fact, there's strong evidence that the Buddha is just encouraging us to proactively, as we you know, were just talking about in the last question here, proactively um, put effort into uh, arousing and cultivating positive states of mind. So... There's a passage in the suttas where um, there's this kind of beautiful image uh, of the mind being uh, luminous. It's just obstructed by defilements, but it's to my to my memory, it's just a single sort of passage. It's not something that comes up with the kind of frequency of the Buddha's encouragement to put forth right effort and resolve negative states and put forth right effort to cultivate sort of positive states. So I think, I think some people make too much out of that image. Um, it's a beautiful image, um, especially maybe to people that grew up in a culture that has theologies that, uh, uh assert that, uh, were inherently, 
flawed or inherently sort of sinful creatures. It's beautiful to think that there's really nothing wrong. Essentially, uh, the nature of consciousness is pure. It's just been uh, obstructed or defiled by uh, by the defilements. So, but I would say right effort figures so strongly and repeatedly in in the core teachings of the Buddha that it's 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 more proactive. It's more putting forth effort and bringing into being uh, the whole the whole basis of what we probably call meditation, the Buddha calls cultivation, and it's founded on this word bhavana, which means to bring into being, or literally to birth, bhava, to bring into being, to cultivate. Um, and that doesn't sound passive to me. It doesn't sound like we're just kind of removing a few negative sort of things and waiting for good things to happen. It's something that needs to be sort of worked worked forward towards. Okay. Let's go back to anybody in the Zoom room have further questions or reflections for us? See, I saw a hand go up. Yeah, Joan? Yes, Ajahn. Um, Ajahn Sona last night uh, made a statement, and I'm not really remembering right now where it fit in the talk, but he said something about, like, the deeper our attachment to pleasure, the deeper our aversion will be to pain. Uh, can you sort that out? I mean, is that is that corresponding that if I'm really attached to sensory pleasure, then I will also have that same amount of aversion to when pain arises? Hmm. Is that well? I don't don't think he's offering it as a mathematical formula, Um, but. I mean, they come together uh, as as all worldly dhammas do. Uh, so, pleasure and pain, like, and the language I use around this is like to whatever level you're invested in um, pleasure, you 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 must fear pain. Uh, they're all they all come as a package. It's part of the same sort of spectrum. Uh, you can't only be uh, attached to pleasure and equanimous about pain because um, it's it's all just a, a spectrum of of sense experience so you're you're in you're in the whole game it, they both come together and all the worldly dhammas are like that uh, you can't be uh, attached to and desirous of of fame and and not concerned about being a nobody. Uh, so, and you can't be uh, invested in and attached to gain without simultaneously being worried of 
uh, about loss. So uh, it's I didn't really pick up on that particular point listening to the talk last night, but um, I think this is probably what he's referring to. And uh, it, it would be easy to just sort of think that um, I'm not really attached to pleasure. What I'm really worried about is pain and how to, how to live a pain-free experience and how to overcome pain. But I don't see how you get out of it. I mean, it's all, it's all up a spectrum and either you're invested in, you're invested in finding happiness and well-being uh, in feeling effect or you're not. So does that make sense? That does make sense to me. And um, what I'm wondering now is if, because um, I know I'm quite attached to sense world and sense pleasure, and I am I am averse to pain. And does that does my aversion to pain, like even projecting into the future, create the uh, causes and conditions for uh, limiting my experience or limiting life? I don't know if this even belongs in Dhamma, but it um, uh, like I'm so afraid of being hurt or feeling something painful mm -hmm. that I won't go and do something that I might even think is pleasure that I might be attracted to, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm, I'm afraid in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, as far as I understand, I mean, it, it all comes together and, um, and it affects, I mean, it, it has kind of knock on effects. It's not, it's not just, um, it doesn't just kind of boil down to, I think sometimes when we think about this, we, we, we strip it down to sort of the experience of pleasure and pain uh, in the body. But, you know, if you think about, uh, if you think about some event that you don't want to go to or something because you're, you feel it's going to be boring or uncomfortable. I mean, that's like, even though, there's some good reason to go to it or there's some potential gain in going to it. You're being, you're being motivated by that same dynamic there. You're kind of a, you know, you're doing this cost benefit analysis uh, all on feeling effect. Is it going to be more pleasurable than painful? And there's really a whole other better sort of ways to evaluate whether or not you should, you should be doing certain things in your life. You know, one is, one is, you know, is it increasing sort of skillful states of mind uh, or is it, I mean, I, I do things all the time that I don't want to do because I want to practice generosity or be helpful to people. And uh, much of the time it, it accompanies a certain amount of discomfort or pain, but I try not to, I try not to weight that in my decision-making process too much. There's some advice that the Buddha gives on speech, and he lists a bunch of different criteria. And it's interesting, he notes uh, that he's not interested in whether, uh, both for the listener and for the speaker, whether or not speech is going to be 
pleasurable or painful. Um, he's much more focused on, is it true? Is it timely? Is it useful? And so, you know, this is a, a, an example of his, his value system. And, uh, and if we think about a lot of the ways that we speak and of the choices that we often sort of make and what we're, we're going to say and what we're not, and usually it's like, is it safe? Is it comfortable? Is it pleasing to say? And then there's a lot of things that are disagreeable to say or disagreeable to talk about or hear that really should be talked about that we don't. Um, and it's because of this aversion to, to uh, Dukkha and pain. And so this is part of what I mean by invested. It's like, this dimension becomes a huge part of the uh, motivational structure and the decision-making processes of our life. And um, it doesn't really support a deeper way of well-being in the same way that the, the Buddhist value system does. So, okay, I see Charles has his hand up. Please go ahead, Charles. Good afternoon. It's such a wonderful uh, time to have these conversations and help unpack practice. Uh, I, I just wanted to comment uh, that I found the, the metaphor, perhaps simile, if that's a better word, of the second arrow uh, to be so helpful. Uh, I've uh, done some sitting outside today, and the neighbor's dog was barking again. And I just found that I was such a terrible archer, nailing myself with a bunch of additional arrows. <laughs> yeah. A great way to start to unhook from the typical problem-saturated story of poor me or, or whatever crap my mind would normally take me into. So mm -hmm. it's a very perspective and tool to use, and I just wanted to kind of hold that up. Yeah, that's a very perfect practical example of this. Uh, you know, and a shorthand I have for myself in supporting that, that very same dynamic is just the encouragement not to create any suffering. So, you know, you're you're meeting something that is unwished for, unwanted, it's painful, it's disagreeable. Um, and you see the mind sort of moving towards creating a a problem out of it. And then I just, you just encourage yourself, like, don't make a problem out of it. Um, so dogs, dogs bark, neighbors have dogs, don't make a problem out of it. Um, and, you know, that's that's not to say you should just be apathetic in life i mean you know if it's suitable or appropriate and it's like a more long-standing problem or you have good enough relationship with your neighbor and they're they want to be really supportive of your retreat environment at home then you can maybe say something but by not making a problem out of it means like don't suffer don't create aversion uh don't start creating sort of negative stories uh don't get angry. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that it's given me a, an opportunity to slow down and reflect on, well, what might a, a skilled response be at some suitable point? And I'm, I'm just resonating with what you were just said about right speech. Is it true, timely, and helpful? Mm -hmm. That, that uh, Just sit, sitting with the first arrow and not making more of it than needs to be is, is really uh, providing me that opportunity. Yeah. And by the way, and that, in that guidance the Buddha gives on speech, if one deems it's not beneficial, even if it's true, um, then, you know, he, he doesn't speak. So it's like, you know, this is really good advice for giving uh, feedback to someone. 
if you don't think they can benefit from it, um, then don't, don't, don't say anything, you know, especially if you're not in a position where you have to, you know, like sometimes because of our social arrangements or agreements, um, you, you do have to sort of speak sometimes, but, um, so often we're, we're just focused on what's right or wrong. And usually there's some, um, uh, idealism, anger, frustration, uh, and judgment that's kind of driving the decision-making process rather than those other criteria. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's go back to another question that was submitted. This is from uh, Steve in Tucson in the USA. Last night, I believe Ajahn Swana said and emphasized the point that although one can be objective about physical pain, one can't be objective about psychological pain. Isn't psychological pain reactive pain, the second arrow? If being objective means bringing awareness to it, and if we can't be objective and bring awareness to these states, are we simply stuck and unable to remove the second arrow ourselves until impermanence changes things? This confuses me because in my own experience, I can become aware that I'm angry or anxious and shift out of it. Please clarify. Mm. Yeah, so Steve, um, I think the point that Ajahn's making here, one is to counter some of the other teachings that are out there that believe that by shifting to a perspective of mm, objectivity, um, that one is not suffering anymore. They've thoroughly done that. And my, my reading of his encouragement there is that there's really, it really goes much further than that. Um, you might, it's a skillful move to start to objectify it and become aware that one is uh, creating psychological pain or inflicting oneself with a second arrow. Um, but the fact that there is uh, an unskillful state of mind, like let's just say anger, means that you are attached. Uh, so even though there is some mindfulness there, it's there's not enough mindfulness and, and wisdom to completely resolve the anger because attachment is still operating there. Um, you're changing it. You're, you're engaging with it in a skillful way, but there's, there's more to, there's more that needs to be done. And there are, you know, many people that just teach awareness is uh, alone enough, but what you might be discerning is like, you're moving, you're, you're first becoming objective and aware of that. And that is helping rather than hurting. And then maybe you're following on engaging with it in a way that brings it to resolution. So, um, so, you know, that's, that's the way I understand um, both the practice and also what Ajahn was, was pointing to uh, last night. So, so this is a, let's see, there's one.
one question from yesterday I didn't get to that I'd like to revisit. This is from Patty in Victoria, Canada. Uh, I've been practicing using the simile of the sentry watching the gate and find it very useful. However, I sometimes struggle to understand how or if it differs from the concept of dualism, where there may be a separate I and myself. Perhaps I'm not understanding dualism correctly. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't answer this yesterday. Because in his talk last night, Ajahn um, Patty directly sort of commented on this I, uh, idea of dualism, yeah, stating that it's not really found in the Pali Canon in the way it might be uh, present in some popular teachings. Uh, I, I most often associate with teachings that come out of, say, Advaita Vedanta or something. And... Um, Really, the the whole concept of the self in Buddhism isn't in opposition to like self and others. It's 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 the byproduct of the do. It's a byproduct of the delusion, the delusory sort of nature of the mind. And so, like this, this this is a bit conceptual, but just the conceptual grounding of this practice of the sentry is that one watches over the gates to the to the city the six gates where sense contact is flowing in so that one is again removing the nutriment or withdrawing sort of that which sort of feeds uh greed hatred and delusion because consciousness sits at the center of that gate. And so uh, one has a, a wise and skilled sort of sentry that starts to watch over, the, watch over the, the gates so that it starts to be more proactively sort of engaging in what it is that one attends to and what it is that one lets sort of develop in their consciousness so that they can um, go about this process of purification of the mind. And the end result of that, the end result of the practice is eventually we develop enough wisdom for that process to become uh, more and more refined. And the city fills up with uh, an abundance of good, skillful, strong, wholesome states of mind. Uh, and delusion is overcome. And the part of the delusion that overcome is overcome is seeing seeing that there was no self all along it was kind of a misconception like we've grabbed the sort of notion of the self wrongly and it's maybe more than we can go into today but the the role that the self is is playing in the generation of of dukkha sort of is bound up with this kind of thirsting sort of process like based on the fact that we're expecting a level of control that isn't there. We're looking for uh, a various forms of permanence and satisfaction that aren't there in the world. Um, that's all oriented towards feeding some sort of concept of, of the self. And 
principally the way that manifests is we're looking for satisfaction in the sense realm. Uh, and we're looking for satisfaction in trying to uh, exert a level of kind of control in the sense realm that isn't really uh, possible. And, uh, and the desire and the, the desire, the desire structure is fueled in part by this delusion and this misapprehension of a self. So, so anyways, I hope, I hope that does get, I hope that addresses your question there. Uh, Mike, you have something for us today? Yeah. Hi, John. Hi. I'm curious in the case of dogs barking and lawnmowers and these other <laughs> common <laughs> um, negative stimuli. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend in the case where you maybe have a little bit of distance from them and they're nibbling at the edge of your awareness, adopting them as objects of meditation in order to better understand kind of the arising of, you know, like clenching in the body or those sorts of things? Or would you say just maybe leave them be? Mm -hmm. Well, when you say in meditation, sometimes that's a bit too broad because, you know, there is a place for making a very um, clear and conscious determination to sort of practice in a way. I mean, we sometimes call it formal meditation, but, you know, there, there's, a, there's a place for, for practicing in, in a way that we don't give much attention to something like that. And we're merely, our chief strategy is really just to keep focusing on the primary object of our meditation. So say with breath meditation, um, you wouldn't really want to divert yourself and give much attention to that. The primary strategy would be go back to the breath, get more interested in the breath, deepen the uh, the joy and the awareness of the breath. Um, but there's, there's other times where we're um, putting forth effort and practicing, which we could call meditation, um, where there isn't such a, a narrow uh, commitment in our practice. Like, you know, oftentimes we're just watching over the body or we're doing walking meditation and there isn't such a tight kind of commitment that we have. And part of the reason it isn't so tight is because we're trying to work with the mind in a more broad way. And, you know, in that sort of situation, then it's really good to, to investigate what's going on there uh, and how it is that we can more skillfully sort of receive and then relate to experiences like that. Uh, There's something that's really hijacking your meditation though. Even if you do have that kind of clear commitment to staying with the breath, then sometimes the most effective thing to do is just to, to deal with it. Um, so, and yeah, so does that make sense, Mike? Is that kind of along the lines of what you were looking for? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Um, I thank everybody in the, the, the room for providing some reflections and live questions and also, everybody that's submitted questions, 
just one more reminder for people. If you'd like to submit questions for Friday or Saturday, uh, please check the link in this description or go to Birkin.ca and have those in by 9 a.m. And uh, we give preferential treatment to ones that are on the theme of last night's talk. So I think tonight Ajahn will be speaking about the mindfulness of mental states or chit pasana. Uh, and we will see you all on the uh, stream tonight for the evening puja. And I hope you enjoy Ajahn's talk tonight at 8.15. So see you all tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs>